Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 37, our second part in the American Revolution series. And this week we're actually going to try to get into the American Revolution. We keep trying to start it and we keep having to give all this backstory stuff. So I think we're almost ready to, to get to some pretty cool stuff. We mentioned uh, Joseph Brant in our last episode and how he was kind of an up-and-coming person that was going to be taking a lot of the influence now that Sir William Johnson has died. And uh, he got it in his head that it might be a good idea to go to England and visit the king. We also mentioned that since William Johnson has died, Guy Johnson has taken over and become the new secretary of the Indian Department for his recently deceased uncle-slash-father-in-law. Yes, you heard that right. Anyway, moving on, Guy Johnson is really active in trying to curb any patriot influence and get the entire Iroquois Confederacy to declare war on these ungrateful, good-for-nothing colonial traitors. Now, Andrew, throughout a lot of our past episodes, Sir William Johnson has been kind of one of the heroes of our story. But now it's going to be really difficult for me being, you know, a stereotypical American patriot because Sir William Johnson and his whole family were stout loyalists. So now I'm going to do my best to try to keep them in some positive light without referring to them as these traitors. Well, to him, we're the traitors. Yeah, I guess you're right. Anyway, as all this is going on, in April 1775, a group of British redcoats were intercepted by a local militia who learned that the British were on their way to confiscate all their weapons in Massachusetts. This soon escalates into a series of battles that we call today Lexington and Concord, and the British have to withdraw back to Boston, and soon tens of thousands of New Englanders pour out of the communities in the countryside and encircle Boston. Old Boston sits just at a little peninsula jutting out into Massachusetts Bay. While this is happening, Guy Johnson, like Caleb said, is looking around and he's realizing the political climate has shifted and I think we need to get out of here. He gets a hundred loyalists down in the Mohawk Valley to pack up and flee with him to Canada. And while he's going, he tries to gather as many Iroquois warriors as possible to go with him. Guess how many he gets? Well, he doesn't get very many, Andrew, and I can kind of see why not everybody is going to be so quick to just jump and move away, especially because some of them have friends and family living in the area, so it would be kind of a big leap to just be like, let's just head north. A lot of them are probably still thinking at the time they might be able to stay neutral, so there's no need to panic and move. So he actually only winds up with about 90 Mohawk, and I think that that has a lot to do with Joseph Brandt, being his kind of uh, partner in crime right now, and he's a Mohawk. So they really didn't get anybody else from any of the other Six Nations. So they flee up the Mohawk Valley, and their first stop is at Oswego. We mentioned that Oswego is a city on Lake Ontario in upstate New York. And there he holds a council and tries to gain more support from the Haudenosaunee, and he fails to do so. And to make matters worse, his cousin-slash-wife dies. Yes, you heard me right. From there, Guy and Joseph Brandt and their little ragtag group of followers finally make it to Montreal on July 17, 1775. And he's planning on waiting for orders to have a counterattack, to maybe go down into New England and take that back over. Now, Johnson and Brandt are kind of frustrated that the Iroquois are declining or refusing to join them. But what have we seen for the last several hundred years, Caleb? Each of the six nations have learned that discretion is the better part of valor. 
I think I've heard that before. Shakespeare. Uh. <laughs> but as far as the British are concerned, back home anyway, they hear that the Iroquois are still their fully committed ally, which really isn't the case at all. Yeah, they're fully autonomous nations, independent of Great Britain. They view themselves as allies, but not as serfs to the crown. And the problem we see time after time is even if you can get the chiefs to officially declare neutrality or even that they will be your ally, uh, a lot of times, sometimes half of their warriors wind up siding with the other side. They have no way to force their young warriors to fort for causes that they don't believe in. So at the end of the day, the Six Nations are going to do what any people would do. They're going to look to their own best interests and their own personal best interests. So this puts uh, the British, particularly in the colonies, kind of at a wit's end. They feel like they need to find a way to get more than just empty promises from the Iroquois and the other eastern uh, Indian nations. They basically want to find a way to force them into their corner. Because so, they can see the lines being drawn at this point. They can see that even if it's not an official full-out rebellion at this point, they can tell that it's coming anytime there's going to be official war declared and these states are going to issue their declaration of independence. So before that happens, they want to pin the Iroquois in their corner and know that they are going to be fighting for them. So on November 11th, 1775, Guy Johnson and Joseph Brandt take a boat and sail to London. And their goal is to get support from the government. And what do the Mohawk want, Caleb? Well, the Mohawk have been pinched between all the colonists and then all of the other nations directly to their west. So the thing they really want is land. They've really felt the pinch the last 200 years, and they don't have a lot of land left at this point. And if you remember the 1768 Treaty of Fort Stanwix, that line, the Mohawk are on the other side of the line, the bad side of the line to be on. So they really do just have these village enclaves left. They don't have vast territory anymore. And all of these forts that we mentioned in the French and Indian War, and even the ones that we're going to be mentioning shortly as far as Ticonderoga and George and Stanwix, all of these are in old Mohawk territory. So when they get to London, Brant becomes pretty much a celebrity. Just like the four Indian kings who came there 65 years before, in London, everybody wants to meet Joseph Brandt, the Mohawk war chief, and he's interviewed by journals and papers and is received officially by King George. He shows up in his regalia, if Mohawks have regalia since they're not kingly, and he is presented before King George. He gives a speech, and King George likes it so much that he is even officially accepted as a Freemason, and King George personally gives him his ritualistic little apron. So what did Brandt say to King George, Caleb? Uh, one thing that's interesting to note with Brandt that's different than any of the other people that have come and visited with the king, Joseph Brandt, like we said, he's got an education. He's fluent in English. He can read and write. In the past, a lot of these people came as just propaganda pieces to show in front of everybody. But Joseph Brandt isn't going to have any of that. He's actually there with an agenda, and he's going to make sure that that agenda is done. He's not going to say something and trust that somebody is going to interpret it the way he wants. He is going to actually give his own speech in English to make sure there's no confusion and no shady deals going on in the back. And this is what he had to say. Now, mind you, he didn't say this directly to King George. The king didn't actually like wasting his time with things like this. So this speech was actually given to King George's Secretary of the State, a man that we're going to see a little more throughout this podcast named Lord George Germain. Joseph Brandt starts, Brother, 
We have crossed the Great Lake to come to this kingdom with our superintendent, Colonel Johnson, from our confederacy of the Six Nations and their allies, that we might see our father, the great king, and join in informing him and his counselors and wise men of the good intentions of the Indians, our brothers, and of their attachment to his majesty and his government. Brother, the disturbance in America gives great trouble to all our nations, and many strange stories have been told to us by the people of that country. The Six Nations, who always loved the king, sent a number of their chiefs and warriors with their superintendent to Canada last summer, where they engaged their allies to join with them in the defense of the country. And when it was invaded by the New England people, they alone defended them. Brother, in the engagement, we had several of our best warriors killed and wounded, and the Indians think it's very hard they should have been so deceived by the white people in that country, many returning in great numbers, and no white people supporting the Indians. They were obliged to return to their villages and sit still. We now, brother, hope to see these bad children chastened, that we may be enabled to tell the Indians who have always been faithful and ready to assist the king what his majesty intends. Brother, the Mohawks, our particular nation, have on all occasions shown their zeal and loyalty to the great king, yet they have been very badly treated by the people in that country. The city of Albany laying an unjust claim to the land of which our lower castle, Kanajahori, we have often been assured by our late great friend Sir William Johnson, who never deceived us, and we know that he was told that the king and his wise men would do us justice. But this notwithstanding, all our applications has never been done, and it makes us very uneasy. We also feel for the distress in which our brothers, the Susquehanna, are likely to be involved by mistake made in the boundaries we settled in 1768. This also our superintendent has laid before the king. We have only therefore to request that his majesty will attend to this matter. It troubles our nation, and they cannot sleep easy in their beds. Indeed, it is very hard, when we have let the king's subjects have so much land for so little value, that they should want to cheat us in this manner, of small spots we have left for our women and children to live on? We are tired of making complaints and getting no redress. We therefore hope that the assurance now given to us by the superintendent may take place that he may have the power to procure us justice. We shall truly report all that we have heard from you to the Sixth Nations in our return. We are well informed there have been many Indians in this country who came without any authority from their own and gave us much trouble. We desire to tell you, brothers, that this is not our case. We are warriors known to all the nations and are now here by appropriation of many of them whose sentiments we speak. Brother, we hope that these things will be considered and that the king or his great men will give us such an answer as it will make our hearts light and glad before we go and strengthen our hands so that we may join our superintendent, Colonel Johnson, in giving satisfaction to all our nations when we report to them on our return, for which purpose we hope soon to be accommodated with passage. Bit of a mouthful there. And you can read into a lot of the things he said there. One that I find especially funny is in the end, he refers to other Indians that have come without any authority. 
and spoken to the king and then come back and given them problems. And we did an episode on the four Indian kings. I'm almost positive he's referring to them. What makes it almost ironic, Caleb, is Joseph Brandt is not a sachem. He eventually gets the rank of, I guess you could call it war chief, but he's not an official leader either. And he's here speaking for his people. He's assuring everyone right here that he has the backing of all the nations and they are known by everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a bold move, Caleb. Let's see how it plays out. So the British crown promises Brant and the Mohawk and the Six Nations the moon. They agree that if they fight on the British side, they will give them Quebec. And we're not talking about Quebec today, the city, or Quebec today, the province. At this time, Quebec, the province, was all of Canada and the modern state of Michigan. It was huge. I wonder how the French Canadians living there at the time uh, would have thought of this if they heard it. Well, I have a feeling that they meant the western part of Quebec where colonists hadn't settled yet. Regardless, they're promising them big stuff. You want land? We'll give you land. Just get the Six Nations to join us. But while Brant claims that he's speaking for all the Six Nations and Guy Johnson is giving the assurances that the Six Nations are going to fight for the British if they just give them some more land, back in America, some other things are happening. Both the British leaders that are there are trying to curry favor with the Six Nations, and the American colonists are also trying their best to get them to, if not join them, at least please stay out of this thing so that we don't have to worry about our frontier border while we're trying to deal with the British. So at Fort Niagara in June 1776, its commandant, Colonel John Butler, holds a meeting, and he plainly told the attendees this, quote, Your father, the great king, has taken pity on you and is determined not to let the American divide you any longer. Though you have been so foolish as to listen to them last year and believed all their wicked stories, they mean to cheat you, and you should be so silly as to take their advice and they should conquer the king's army. Their intention is to take all your land from you and destroy your people, For they are mad, foolish, crazy, and full of deceit. They told you last fall in Pittsburgh that they took the tomahawk out of your hands and buried it deep and transplanted the tree of peace over it. I therefore now pluck up the tree and dig up the tomahawk and replace it in your hands with the edge towards them that you may treat them as enemies. Wow. There's a lot of symbolism in there, and uh, that guy's talking pretty boldly. Then, as the Seneca are sitting there listening to this, one of their leaders named Flying Crow is sitting there intently. He listens to Butler, and then he gives this response. It is true. They have encroached on our lands. But if you are so strong, brother, and they but as a weak boy... Why ask our assistance? I will reserve my strength to strike down those who injure me. If you have so great plenty of warriors, powder, lead, and goods, and they so few and little of either, be strong and make good use of them. You say their powder is rotten. We have found it good. You say they are all mad, foolish, and wicked, and deceitful. I say you are so, and they are wise, for you want us to destroy ourselves in your war, 
and they advise us to live in peace. Their advice we intend to follow. So Flying Crow's not having any of it. He's not taking the brown-nosing, smart, uh, sugary words. He's reading right through this guy, and he's like, hey, he's going out the strategy that everybody else has ever done. Let's try and get them to uh, fight this war for us. And I think it's a great answer. If you're so strong and you say they're so weak, what do you need us for? And then Butler hears this, and he becomes irate. And he begins calling them out and saying to their faces that they're cowards, which is always a great strategy when you're trying to negotiate them to join your side. And then Gaiasuta steps up. Remember Gaiasuta? He's been kind of a big deal for a while now. Gaiasuta, he's the one that has met with George Washington on several occasions. and uh, He and Pontiac had a huge rebellion a while back. Not too long ago. Not too long ago. And so he stands up and he says... We must be fools, indeed, to imagine that you want to bring us into an unnecessary war. So, in other words, how stupid do you think we are? So, after meeting at Niagara, Gaiasuta immediately gets in his car and drives down I-90 to head towards Pennsylvania. Well, actually, he probably walked. But anyway, he heads down into the Ohio country, and on July 6th, just a few weeks later, he meets with American leaders at Fort Pitt who are holding their own council with the Mingo and other Ohio area nations. So here, Gaiasuta was told that the Continental Congress and Caleb, they're brown-nosing just like the British were just brown-nosing. They said that the Congress greatly reveres him, and they want to make him a colonel in their army. And they present him with a silver gorget. I had to Google what the heck a gorget was. It's like a shiny silvery necklace that could almost be like armor but usually it was more like a decorative ornamental thing yeah traditionally i think it was um oh now i'm gonna get it wrong but i think grenadiers wore them and at one point a long time ago it actually was armor but it got smaller and smaller and smaller and then it just kind of became part of the uniform to distinguish you amongst somebody else and i believe they were even wearing them in the civil war in america certain branches of uh uh american soldiers anyway he's presented with this silver gorget oh very nice And after that, he's given a wampum peace belt, and it had 13 diamonds across it to signify the 13 American United Colonies. Gaiasuta sits there and stoically accepts the gifts, and he tells them that he's graciously going to decline the colonel commission. And he gives a similar answer to the Americans that he gave to the British. That's right, Andrew. He says, We will not suffer either the English or the Americans to march an army through our country. Should either attempt... We shall forward them three times from proceeding. What is he saying, Andrew? Uh, He's pretty much doing the mom to the toddler thing, saying... I'm going to give you three three chances. chances. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Okay, let me finish. Uh, I'll finish the quote here. Uh, um, But should they then persist, they must abide by the consequences. I am appointed by the Six Nations to take care of the country, and I desire you not to think of an expedition against Detroit. For I repeat it to you again, we will not suffer an army to march through our country. So he really doesn't want an army marching through their country? But he's giving them three chances, so what they have to do is just march through all at once real quickly. And then they can march home. And then they still have an extra time for backup just in case. I think it's going to warn them three times to turn around. So Captain Neville of Fort Pitt responds that, There's no need to worry at all, because there's no danger of them traveling through the Ohio country. Uh, 
if if the British decided to come through, though, we may have to attack them, which Gayasutta said, nobody is marching through our territory. Uh, the Americans are pretty pleased with the results of the conference. Others are not so much. Following Gayasutta's promise, a Delaware sachem called White Eyes stood up in anger and started jaw-wagging at Gayasutta, saying he had no right to speak on behalf of all the Ohio people. Well, the poor Delaware seemed to have always gotten the short end of the stick every conference for the past 200 years. So I can just picture this Delaware sachem standing up and seeing this and just realizing that the ball's in his court and uh, he's going to get the short end of the stick again. But he really puts it to him. He angrily declares that we are going to throw down this Iroquois yoke and the Delaware are going to be free. And Gaiasucha said, yeah, whatever. <laughs> now, while all this is happening with these meetings at Niagara and Fort Pitt, simultaneously, we mentioned last week that there's another delegation from the Six Nations meeting in Philadelphia at the Continental Congress pledging neutrality. We talked about this last time. No need to go into great details again. So it seems like the Six Nations really want to stay out of this conflict and not risk their own peoples. So far, so good, right? Well, that is until Johnson and Brandt got back from England. Guy Johnson and Joseph Brandt return to North America and they land at Staten Island in New York in July 1776. A lot is going on at this point. July 1776, so... The declaration has just been signed, and they're sending copies over to New York right now as Washington is sitting here on Long Island. The British have sent a massive armada, and I'm talking, I can't remember, hundreds of ships have sailed into New York Harbor, and they're trying to take over Manhattan Island. Have they gotten here before Brant has arrived, or are they on the way as Brant is here right now? I believe it's simultaneous. They're, they're right. He may so he's even be with this armada. Okay. So Washington's camped out on Long Island. And when I say Long Island, don't think of it today as the far end of Long Island. Think of like Brooklyn and Queens. That's where they're staying, but there's nothing there right now. Brandt says, while I'm here, how can I help? And he joins General Howe's forces. He's trained to be a Mohawk warrior, and also he has colonial militia experience. And when this battle is all said and done, he gets a distinguishment for the bravery that he showed in this battle. Long story short, Washington forces pretty much get overwhelmed. He realizes that he has to retreat. He doesn't know what to do. The British are closing in. But then a fog kind of settles over the bay and Washington decides to get all his boats and head down and he gets some fires going and has his men make a lot of noise that are left behind. And then under the cover of this fog, he sails across and is able to cross over Manhattan Island and escape into New Jersey and then Pennsylvania. So Washington's army has had to flee New York City, Caleb. And now Brant and Guy Johnson are sitting here on Staten Island, and they are approached with specific missions going forward. Yeah, they're going to be taken into the fold and used as agents for the crown. And they're going to send... Guy Johnson up north of Canada, where we said a lot of the Indians had been fleeing and a lot had already been living there, uh, to try and get as much support, see if he can get together a whole Indian army of different uh, Algonquians and old Hurons and Iroquois for scouts and things like that, because they've learned that they can be very useful for scouting and for skirmishing in front of the armies. But they've got a different mission for Brant. 
Yes, they want Brant to return to his Mohawk homeland. And since he has already told the king and the whole government that he can guarantee the Six Nations to come forward to fight for the British, well, go ahead and get them up there and get them riled up, and we're going to have them help us take back New York. Now, because Guy Johnson and Joseph Brandt have shown that they're trustworthy loyalists at this point, they kind of feel free to give them a little information on what the plan is. At this point, everybody's still kind of wondering what extent the English are going to fight back and bounce back to show who's boss here. And they learn that large amounts of forces are being raised in Canada under a General Burgoyne. Yes, next time we are going to talk about the entire Burgoyne campaign. Now, I also wanted to take a moment and talk about one other person. And he just may be one of the most underrated people in colonial American history. I'm referring to a man who was born with the name Akiatan Haronquen, or as he was known by the English, Lewis Cook. Lewis Cook was probably born sometime around 1737 up in what we would know today as Canada. What makes him kind of unique is his father was an African and his mother was an Algonquin Indian or possibly even a Mohegan. In around 1745, the French attacked his parents' village. A group of Iroquois also came along to aid the French as auxiliaries. Now, in the aftermath, Lewis's mother and he were captured, and the commanding officer there, a man by the name of Lacorn, saw the boy and said that he was an African and he was taking him to be his property. In other words, he was going to take this boy to make him a slave. You know, he's African, so obviously that's his lot in life. His mother pleads with him saying, no, it's her son. And the officer says, no, no, this Negro is mine. Like any desperate mother, she goes and finds whoever will listen to her. And she pleads to the Iroquois that are there on this war party. And when she appeals to the chief warriors, they come to Lacorn and say, yeah, you need to give that boy back to his mother. Reluctantly, he does. The mother is so gracious to her newfound Iroquois friends that she would like to go with them and return to their country. And so she and the boy end up settling in a Mohawk village and becoming adopted into their tribe. After his mother died, some of the local Jesuit missionaries that were there took a very keen liking to him. They wanted Lewis to join them as being kind of like a secretary and attendant, which he accepted. So Lewis is just getting inundated in a mix of cultures, having African parentage and an Algonquin mother being raised in a Mohawk area and then educated by Jesuits and learning French. The future was looking very good for him. He showed an aptitude for oratory skills. He was soon deliberating at councils. He was becoming renowned as a very prestigious warrior. He was considered very wise. So when war happens in 1755, in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, he's going out with his Canadian Mohawk friends and family and clan members on these expeditions. He gets entangled in almost every single engagement that we can think of. At first, he skirmishes with Rogers Rangers. He's there fighting for the French at Braddock's defeat. Then he's back up in Canada and helping take Fort Oswego with General Montcalm in 1756. Then he's over in Ticonderoga helping push back Abercrombie. And he even participates in the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. 
And if you look at the portrait, the famous painting that shows Montcalm being mortally injured, he's actually standing there off to the side looking all dramatic. Once the war is lost, though, and the French government is forced to pull out of Canada, Lewis really feels embittered towards the British. He does not care for them one bit. But he actually doesn't mind the colonial Americans. He's built very good relationships with them. And when he hears the rumblings of war happening, he immediately becomes an ally to the patriotic causes. He started being an informant that would go and drop off information in Albany to uh, General Schuyler and John Becker, pretty much give them any information that he wanted to know on troop movement with the British up in Canada. When things finally come to a head, he comes to the Americans and says, I'm sure that you will succeed. He says, quote, for their liberties, their country, their wives and children, and for their church, they would fight. They will never submit. Their cause is a good cause, and they will become victorious. After the battles at Lexington and Concord, Lewis takes some like-minded Christian Native Americans and heads down to Washington's camp at Cambridge during the Siege of Boston and pledges his loyalty to the American cause. Washington even mentions him in his correspondence how encouraged he was and how impressed he was. As it would happen, Reverend Kirkland, who we talked about before, was the missionary to the Oneida Indians. He was also there. This is what he said. One of the Kananawaga chiefs rose and said that he perceived that there was a war cloud rising in the east, which may make much trouble and bring a great distress upon the American people. Your true Indian friends from the north will do what they can in your favor. Indians are born free people. They love liberty. Yes, they would wish to live as free as the deer in the forest and the fowls of the air. Brother Bostonians, you are a great people, and you are sensible of this, as to dare to meet the King of England in a battlefield. We, the Indians, are now in a feeble state of comparison to what we once were. You will, I hope, always remember the feeble people once the lords of this soil, who are now much reduced as to the numbers and strength. The war spirit which is naturally in us is still so, and we will therefore exert ourselves to our utmost to aid you when an opportunity shall offer, even to the destruction of our village by the British, your enemies. Remember, brother Bostonians, the word of your brothers at Kananawaga. Never forget that a portion of them are your true friends at heart, and pray to the great spirit, that you may become free people as your brothers the Indians. Lewis Cook is going to join the Continental Army, and he's going to eventually, before the war is out, be promoted to a rank of colonel, which makes him the highest-ranked Native American and African ever promoted in the Continental Army. It's a testament to how invaluable an ally he's going to be. And we're going to mention him much more as we come up into our next episode. And as for our next episode, it's going to be freaking awesome and horrible at the same time. Because a lot of people are going to make a lot of stupid decisions. There's going to be a lot of bravery. There's going to be a lot of fighting. And there's going to be a lot of, I would say, humorous, ironic things that happen. And you'll notice pretty quick uh, that all of the same choke points that we talked about in the French and Indian War... They're going to be in the exact same spot, the exact same forts, just with different names. And the forts have been beefed up, and uh, technology's gotten a little better. And The difference is, this time the British will be coming down from Canada 
to attack the American places. But Caleb's right. We'll be talking about Oswego. We'll be talking about the Oneida carry with Stanwicks. We'll be talking about Fort Ticonderoga and Lake Champlain and Lake George. It's really going to be kind of deja vu. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Ironic thing, too, with this is a lot of the people that were the young soldiers are now like senior officers and things like that from uh, the French and Indian War. And during this campaign, we're going to see a lot of the younglings that are going to be raised up for the new generation. We're going to meet people for the first time like Red Jacket and Corn Planter. And old faces will still be around like Old Smoke and Gaia Sunta and, of course, Joseph Brandt and his sister. And just everybody who's anybody is going to be involved in this campaign. So please join us next time for Revolutionary War Part 3. Gentle reminder... You can email us at longhousepodcast at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook. We'd also like to thank new members of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. What do we have this week, Andrew? Well, we've got a new person from Canada named Ira Hayes. And I just got this email this morning from a guy named Dave. And he says that he doesn't have iTunes, but I wanted to give him a shout out because he says that he just coincidentally stumbled upon us and he's hooked. And he is in Tyrol, Austria. He's from Australia? Put a few more shrimp on the barbie. No, he's from Austria. Oh, okay. That's that's close, right? Not at all. Okay. Until next time, folks. Bye, everybody.